closing out this Advent season, we're going to be doing so by looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And so uh, the question we're hoping to answer is, what can Jesus' birth teach us? What is, what is some of the significance of the birth of Jesus that we need to be mindful of? Maybe that goes beyond what we typically think about when we are reflecting upon God's work in our lives this Christmas season. So asking the question, what can Jesus' birth teach us? We're going to see this in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. As we hear the conclusion to Matthew's genealogy, he's telling the story of Jesus' family tree and what it means for us. This is God's word to us. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name of Jesus. Maybe seated as we go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon this time. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word to us. Pray that you would bless it, you would guard me from error, and that you would instruct us. Lord, you give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things in your Word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of your people that are here and those that are watching online. I ask, Lord, that you would do a work that's only explainable because you have done it. We ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, let's start to work through this passage together, which is our our custom here at Dr. Field. We're going to begin looking at verses 18 through 19. And if you're taking notes in terms of an outline, one of the things that you're going to see here is there's something somewhat scandalous about what is mentioned in verses 18 through 19. Mary was pledged to be the, be the wife of Joseph. But how is Mary described? She's described as a virgin. But she's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now I want you just to take a second to think about that and reflect upon what that means. This is completely unique in the history of the world. Never happened before. Never happened Again, a virgin is found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
the details of which are explained by an angel to a select group of people. Can you imagine trying to explain this to people? You've probably thought about this before. In fact, there's kind of a, it was an interesting video a few years ago, I think I saw on social media, of, of how this conversation would have played out had it been through a text message. And it, it's, it's a little bit funny, but it's also, you're a little bit uncomfortable because as you're thinking about it, you're going, okay, I don't have another example that I can point to. It's not like you're able to say, listen, Mom, you know what happened to Julie down the street? Yeah, she got pregnant while she was a virgin. Well, that's what happened to me. There, there was no one to be able to point to say, it's just like what happened to this person. It's no, no, never before, never again, virgin is pregnant. You can, you can almost hear the, the ridicule and the doubt in the voice of those that hear it. Sure, Mary. Sure, Joseph. Oh, and an angel showed up and told you this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, why, why would I not believe that? Can you imagine doing this and having to explain this in a culture where honor and shame are major factors of a social status? We see a little bit of a detail about what it could mean for someone to be pregnant outside of marriage. Told that Joseph, man betrothed Mary, the law-abiding Jew, who loves his betrothed wife, he loves her enough that instead of dealing with the situation in a public manner, he's going to divorce her or break this off in a private manner so that she would not be put to shame in this grace. Obviously, the implication is that some people would have thought that there was infidelity. Yet, as we will see, an angel prevents Joseph from following through this divorce. Now, you may be thinking, well, okay, so Joseph and Mary had this really uncomfortable situation that they had to work through and talk about. But then if you read other accounts in the Gospels, you see that Jesus also had to deal and was confronted. Even people attempted to bully him and embarrass him about the story of his origin. If you read in John chapter 8, when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees for their lack of faith in him, he was telling them, you're not children of Abraham. If you were children of Abraham, you'd have the faith of Abraham and you'd put your trust in me. And what did the Pharisees say to him? Oh, you're one to be talking about who your father is. We, they said, we were not born as illegitimate children. We know who our Father is, Jesus. You get the implication of that, right? It's like telling you slow your roll, Mr. Religious Teacher. You got daddy issues. You don't even know who your dad is. Oh, yeah. You claim to know who your daddy is. You, you, you claim this idea that angel showed up and explained it to your, your mother and her betrothed husband 
Yeah, we know about you. So, so, so you recall at times in the Gospels when, when people will hear Jesus make a great claim and they'll see Jesus do something and they say things like, isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? Why do you think they're saying that? They're saying that because there's a scandal associated with his birth. There's a shame associated with it. In their eyes, he was an unplanned pregnancy. He couldn't even be sure who his father was. So Mary and Joseph likely bore this type of accusation throughout their life from probably some of their family, definitely friends, and then the social system that was around them. Sure, you say that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Never heard of that before. We know how this works. It's been working that way for thousands of years. Don't tell us that type of thing, Joseph. Don't tell us that type of thing, Mary. We do not believe you. What did they do? Mary trusted and obeyed God. Joseph trusted and obeyed God. What was it that enabled them to trust and obey God? We see this in verses 20 through 21. While there was a scandal associated with Jesus' conception and birth, there is a surety that grounds his parents in this hope to obey. These verses, 20 through 21, teach us something about the surety of God's word. Notice the promise in verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Speaking of, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, similar to the word or name Joshua in the Old Testament as well, very similar. Because he will save his people from their sins. And we actually looked at just this verse last Christmas Eve regarding how there's a sure promise of God's grace for our sins. What is good news here is that this passage does not say Jesus might save us from our sins, but instead that he will save his people from their sins. That Jesus was born to die to give us life. So we ask the question, who then are his people? Because if we think about the conversation that was taking place in John 8, there would be some that would say his people are those that can claim some sort of physical descendancy from Abraham. But Jesus says, it's not the children that physically descend from Abraham that can claim to be my people. It is those that put their trust in me. In fact, Jesus says, those that don't trust me have another father. Their father is Satan. Strong words. Jesus had some really... Strong things to say to those that did not believe. But Jesus says, my people, those that will be saved are those that put their trust in me. What great news to know that there is no uncertainty. There is no question about the efficacy or the effectiveness of Jesus' death. He will most certainly save his people, those who flee to him for refuge. Which is part of the reason why we see such notorious sinners in his family tree. We talked about this over the last few weeks. We see the scandal of the story of Abraham's children, his grandchildren through Isaac. And Isaac 
He's the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers, while they constitute the tribes of Israel as their heads, keep in mind what they did to Joseph. That would make for a very awkward Christmas Eve dinner. To get together with those that sold you into slavery. And yet we hear not only of Judah, he's included. He fathers Perez and Zerah. His mother was Tamar. Scandal. You move on and you see Selma, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Prostitute. Jericho. Then you have Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Ruth was Moabite. You have David, father of Solomon. It's described as he fathered Solomon with someone else's wife, and he had the man killed. Why on earth would it be? Why do you include that? That's not the type of thing that you sit down and say, let me tell you about your granddad. You go, I'm going to only tell you the good parts. That's yeah, funny, when I, when I grew up, um, I, had a, uh, I had an interesting cousin that lived down the street from me. And uh, he was interesting. And I didn't know him that well. And uh, I was kind of scared to ride my bike by his house because, again, he was interesting. Um, and his last name was Huff. But my dad always told me that he was my mother's cousin. I was like, that, that doesn't make sense because my mother's last name's Powell. Why, why would dad, he was joking about the way. My, my dad was always like, yeah, he's on your mother's side. But his last name's off. And I eventually kind of got the joke. It's like, oh, now I understand why. It's because when you're telling the story of your family history, you, there's people that you don't want to include, Amen. Jesus does not cover up the scandal of his family tree. It's because he came to save people like this. He came to save sinners, which is good news for you and your family tree. In fact, some of you may be the person in the family tree that people feel that way about. (laughs) But there's a certainty that those that come to him, there's a promise that if you turn to him, He will save you. It's not a a might. It's a he will. The sins that you bring to him, he will wash away. That's why they named him Jesus. The Lord saves. But how can we be sure that Jesus is able to do what he promised? How can someone born of a woman save sinners from their sin? What is it about Jesus that allows us to have this kind of of hope. I believe we get a glimmer or a glimpse of the answer to that question when we look at verses 22 through 25. These final verses, they pull back the curtain a little bit and they allow us to see the mystery of God's work in salvation. Specifically, when you look at verses 22 through 23, they tell us this. They say, all this took place. What's the this? All the things that it preceded. That is, that he was born of a virgin, In this particular way, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. 
That's Isaiah, Isaiah 7. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son that will call him Manuel, which means God with us. You see, the conception of Jesus, as we've already considered in part, it was unlike every other conception in the world. As Matthew draws from Isaiah 7, we are told that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son whose name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the virgin birth of Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. This was planned, and God's word prophesied of it, and God's word did not fail. What his word foretold came to pass. Now, as we think about this event in history, we need to think deeply about some of its implications. First, we ask, how does a virgin conceive? Well, the answer is clear. Naturally, virgins do not conceive. Yet what is going on with Jesus is not based upon the pattern of nature as we know it. The Holy Spirit, as it's described elsewhere in Luke's account, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived Jesus in her womb without any contribution from a physical father. This is what we would call a miraculous work, a supernatural work. It is a work that cannot take place apart from the powerful work of God. Virgins do not conceive. That is impossible. Yet, this virgin conceived. How did that happen? God supernaturally showed up and worked in the virgin's womb through his supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, bringing into existence the Savior and the salvation that we would so desperately need. Thus, the story that Matthew 1 is telling us is that sinners, big and small, are in need of a Savior. It is telling us, though, that our only hope for salvation in this world depends upon God's supernatural intervention. It depends upon His miraculous work to do the impossible. Apart from God's work, this world would be doomed. Yet God, in His grace and in His mercy, He intervenes. God came to us because we could not ascend to Him because our sin separated us from Him. God the Son took on flesh, becoming human, born as a baby, demonstrating God's love for sinners. Supernatural intervention. It was not proper, nor would it have been effective for Mary and Joseph to have conceived naturally. Conceived child to be able to save us from our sins. If that is possible, humanity could be proud and claim, look what we did. We produced our own salvation. No. God would bear along our salvation through the humility and the obedience of a virgin woman, Mary. 
and yet it would be marked by his supernatural intervention into history than the miraculous virgin conception and birth of Jesus to save sinners so that no man or woman, boy or girl could ever boast and say, look what we did. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to God and God keeps his word. He has intervened into the world through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to his plan to save us from our sins and give us life through the life and death of Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of Mary, the Son of God. This is what Matthew chapter 1 has been teaching us through the family tree of Jesus. God keeps his word and he saves his people to their uttermost. There are three points of application that I want us to leave this passage with this morning. Here's the first point of application that I believe that we can glean from this passage. It is this. Number one, Jesus is not only able to sympathize with our feelings of shame, but he is able to break its power in our lives as well. Have you ever felt shame because of something you did or because of something someone did to you or because of something that you have been accused of that's simply not true? Jesus is not simply aware that shame exists. Jesus knows what it's like to be shamed from his peers. I know our kids are not in here. We've got, got some of our students in here as well. But you know, one of the things I, th- I think about, I think about the fact that we have kind of a, another epidemic that we kind of face within our culture. And that's this idea of, of kids being bullied, picked on, shamed. And, and it's kind of that Darwinian idea, only the strong are going to make it, only the strong are going to survive. And I think about the fact that Jesus is a child. He grew up, and we tend to jump immediately from his birth to his miracle at Cana, right? Birth to water to wine. And we forget that there's this 30 years or so where he lived and he worked among a people in relative obscurity. You think he ever heard a kid at school make fun of the fact that mom and dad had a story of how he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? You think he was ever shamed growing up? And he was God in the flesh. You know, put yourself in that position for a second. And you're 12 years old. And people are ridiculing you. And you're going, well, how, how can you make this type of comment? You know, I'm not, I'm not appealing to some Gnostic gospel account of his childhood. I'm looking at Isaiah 53 that tells us that there was nothing about his appearance that made him sought after. It's not like Jesus walked around and he had the prettiest smile and was just kind of 
levitating off the ground as if he wasn't really human. He was truly human and he was truly God. So just imagine for a second, for a second he's, he's 12 years old and I don't know what type of games they played. But it's not like he made every shot. It's not like he was a super athlete. It's not like as he was a construction worker or a carpenter that at times he didn't get things wrong and learn. There's nothing sinful about that. It says he grew in wisdom and knowledge. He was sinless, perfectly sinless. Never did anything to to harm his character or violate who he was as God. Yet, he was obviously normal enough without sin for 30 years that whenever he claimed to be God, people were like, the carpenter's son? There was, there was some, nothing really kind of gave it away except for his parents speaking to him about the temple, in, uh, temple interaction. You remember when he, he, he goes off to him about my father's business? Which, before he starts doing miracles, that just seems odd. So here, here's Jesus, and, and he's 12 years old, and he's dealing with something, and he's God. Like, keep in mind, he, he does not cease being God. Now, if you had that type of power at your disposal, and you were a 12-year-old being picked on, what would you do? I know what you'd do. Same thing I'd do. I wouldn't tolerate it for a second. What did he do? Philippians 2 says, while he was God, he took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not count equality as a thing to be held, to, held on to for his advantage. All that means, it doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means that while he had it available, he didn't take advantage of it so that he could fully enter into the human experience. Now, what does that mean for you when you deal with shame and you deal with the bullies and you feel vindicated and justified that, oh, I'm going to end them We have this example in Christ that says, I not only know what you're going through, I know what you're going through to a degree that you will never understand. And yet, for your salvation, for your forgiveness, I kept on. It's what Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew what it was like to be ridiculed. He knew what it was like to be bullied by self-righteous people. Jesus knew what it was like to have people try to embarrass him because of his family story. And yet, because of these things, Hebrews tells us, he is a sympathetic high priest, which means you cannot bring a story of your own shame, whether it's shame related to your family, shame related to your circumstances, or shame related to your sin. You can't bring anything to him where he does not have the ability to sympathize with you, not as a sinner, but as one who has felt shame, scorned it, went through it. Why? So that he might redeem you. He might save you. This this is the Christ that we're calling you to. When you come to Christ, you are not coming to someone that doesn't know your pain or your suffering. You're not coming to someone that will shame you or dishonor you. You're not coming to someone who is unable to sympathize with your weakness and your struggle. He knows your weakness, and yet he still loves you and invites you to come to him. That's why he came. 
He did not come looking for perfect people. He came because no one was perfect. And so he invites those that have endured shame and known shame, and even those that have caused shame in the life of others. He says, come to me. And you say, you don't know the type of shame that I carry around. You may very well be true. That may very well be right. I might not know. But he does. And he nails the shame to the cross. And you don't have to bear it anymore. You say, it's, it's tough, Pastor. My, my kids have, have left the faith. My grandkids are struggling. My marriage is falling apart. I, if you knew the things that went through my head, you'd never talk to me again. You would lock the doors. And yet Jesus says, come. He discerns the thoughts of men and women and he says, come. He knows how hard your marriage is right now. And he says, come. He knows your sins. That's why he came. He can break its power over your life. It's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see in this passage is that you can know for certain today that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. You do not have to wonder if Jesus will turn away your request for forgiveness. Aren't you glad that this passage does not say, and he might save his people from their sins? It does not say he might. It says he will. It's good news, isn't it? You ever shown up in a meeting where it's not certain? It's all about a possibility? A doctor says, we might be able to take care of that, is not near as good of news as we can take care of that without any problem. It's what Christ says. I didn't come here and risk something. I came here knowing that everyone that calls upon my name will be saved. So you don't know how bad I am. That's not what the passage said. Do you read the family history? He knows the kind of people he comes from. He knows the type of people he represents. He represents sinners. Sinners need a savior. He doesn't come to bring shame upon sinners. He comes to deliver them from that by giving his own life. In the final application, the first is he can deliver us from shame. The second is we can have certainty that we can be forgiven And the third is this. You cannot save yourself. What do I mean by that? While the virgin birth teaches us several things, one of the most important things that it teaches us is that we desperately need God to intervene in our lives. God did not take a mere human and say, okay, I'm going to make you the savior of the world. God himself became human. 100% God, 100% man. And God himself came to save us because no one else could do it. God supplied what God demanded. 
It took the supernatural work of God to bring Jesus into the world to save us. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's virgin womb. Thus, humanity cannot provide its own salvation through its own natural means. We need the supernatural work of God, which is why he came into the world. So here's the tendency. Our tendency is to go, yeah, you're right. I've got a lot of brokenness. I've got a lot of sin. I've got a lot of rebellion in my life. But I'm going to do it. I can fix this, men. That is one of our dispositions. Not so weak. I'm not going to depend on somebody else. Not going to ask for directions. Not going to look at the instructions until I break it. Then I'm going to return it to Amazon and tell them something was wrong with it. You know, I don't need, I don't need help. The virgin birth tells us, yeah, you do. You cannot save yourself. God himself had to come to save you. And the good news is that he did. We need the supernatural work of God on our behalf. And so the virgin birth pleads with us to quit trying to save yourself through your own natural efforts, but instead embrace, put your faith in the Holy One who came to save us, who supernaturally stepped down into our world to redeem us, to save us from our sins that we cannot save ourselves from. He will save you if you will call upon him. He will welcome you. He will wreck your shame. He will destroy it. He will remove it. You can leave today knowing that you've been forgiven. That's what this is about. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Christ invaded the world to redeem people like you and like me. Did you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for saving us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have. Prayer leaders, if you are able and could make your way to the front. Father, we we do not want to take what we are celebrating during this Christmas season lightly. It is such tremendous good news. Lord, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning, you would apply the truth of your word to the hearts of those that are listening. I pray that you would bear their shame. Oh, Jesus. That they would know that they don't have to because you have done it in their place. That they would not seek to bear their sin, but that they would see that you bore their sin away, that they might be forgiven. And that they might know for certain that the Lord saves And Lord, I pray that anyone that's in this room this morning 
that is trying to save themselves through natural means and processes, Lord, that they would recognize that they need the supernatural intervention of the Spirit of God in their life. That if they could save themselves, Jesus would not have to come. But he came because we can't save ourselves. God, would you have mercy and apply your word to the hearts of your people. Would you encourage the Christian Lord and for the sinner that has not found rest and forgiveness yet, I pray this morning that they would. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, our prayer leaders are up at the front and we're going to have a closing song. It'll be a season and opportunity for you to respond to what God is doing and saying through his word. If you want to be forgiven, while this is not a magic formula, you're not forgiven simply because you state these words in a particular order. But if you call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to save you, it is his pleasure and his joy to do so. And you can be confident that he will. You say, how do I call upon the name of the Lord? We have a good example of a sinner in the Gospels that when he was confronted with the goodness of God, the difficulty of his own sin, the brokenness of his own sin, the darkness of his own heart, he simply beat his breast and said, Lord God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You can pray simply, simply like that. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, because of Jesus, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again the one who is Lord and Savior. The promise of God's word is that all that call upon him in faith will be saved. If you desire to be so saved, call upon his name now. Make your way during the final song to the front or find someone after the service that you can talk to that can help you take the next steps of obedience to Christ. Lord God, do the supernatural work that we cannot do. Let your spirit reign as we sing. We ask this in Jesus' holy name, the names above every name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.